San Diego Comic-Con is right around the corner, and Black Girl Nerds will be appearing on some panels. So listen up. Starting on Thursday at 6 o'clock p.m., Fandom Diversified, Changing Dynamics of Geek and Nerd Journalism. I'll be on that panel, yours truly, Jamie Brodnax. And that's located in Pacific 24 North Tower in the Marriott at the Marquise in San Diego. On Friday at 6.30 to 7.30, Fangirls Lead the Way. Myself and Connie from Black Girl Nerds will be on that panel in room 26AB. On Saturday from 11 to 12, I will be on a panel called Rise of the Fangirls, the Past Six Years of Women in Geek Culture. That's going to be in room 25ABC. And finally, on Saturday from 4 to 5, I will appear on the We Are All Heroes panel. That will be located in room 14A. And don't forget about the Black Girl Nerds of Color Racialicious Meetup. That's going to be at Friday at 7 p.m., ends at 10, and that is located at the Hilton Bayfront, located in the Pool Club. So we look forward to seeing you at San Diego Comic Con coming up very, very soon. Should be lots of fun. I'm Joni J, creator of A Tribe Called Geek, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, this is Liz Femi. I'm an actress co-starring on Send Me, an original web series, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, I'm Joy Bryant, and I'm a Black Girl Nerd, and you are listening to Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, I'm Effie Brown, and I'm a producer of Dear White People, Real Women Have Curves, and recently you probably saw me on HBO's Project Greenlight. And you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. tuning in to episode 81 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Elements, Bad Dad Rehab, and Cell. Three segments. In our first segment, we invite Tanika Stotts. Tanika Stotts is a creator of the anthology series called Elements. Tanika just made her goal on Kickstarter. However, this episode was actually recorded prior to that. She sits down with Gabby on a one-on-one. In our second segment, KB does a one-on-one interview with four talented actors from the TV One show, Bad Dad Rehab. Bad Dad Rehab is about four men who learn how to become dads, and it's an original movie on the TV One network. In our third segment, 
Tora sits down for a one-on-one interview with Elizabeth Burns. Elizabeth Burns is in a new Stephen King film called Cell, starring John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson. So all of you horror nerds out there will be very excited for that one. So that is our show. Great segments filled with very talented individuals. Sit back, relax, and enjoy it. And thanks again for tuning in to episode 81, Elements, Bad Dad Rehab, and Cell. Tanika Stotts hails from Portland, Oregon. After spending quite a few years as a spoken word artist, she shifted her focus to comics, which she has admired and loved since she was a little kid. Tanika writes the webcomic Full Circle and the mini-comic Love and Sprockets. She's also edited a few comic anthologies, including most recently The Elements Anthology and Beyond Anthology. Hello, and welcome to Black Girls Nerds Podcast. My name is Gabby, and our guest is the award-winning comic book artist, Tanika Scott, editor of the Awesome Elements Anthology, a comic anthology by creators of color. Welcome, Tanika Scott, to the show. Hey, I'm actually Tanika Stotts. Sorry! Stotts! I'm so sorry! (laughs) Whenever I read the email in your name, I saw... It's okay. We're that anti-family. We're like, we say no to the C. We take all the T's. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's all right. Don't worry about it. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so the family and everything. So tell us tell us about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I hail from, uh, I was actually born in Inglewood, California. Inglewood. Anyway, uh, I won't do any further than that. I was raised in Arizona, Phoenix, Mesa, Tempe, you kind of bounce around. Arizona is one of those really big states. You kind of go everywhere. I made my way over to Texas for a short bit, not by choice. My family was a military family, so we moved around quite a bit. Spent my time in Louisiana, New Mexico. Finally, I rolled my way up here to the Pacific Northwest without my family. I kind of want to go over there without (laughs) my family. Not like I don't like my family, but... I always want to go to the West Coast. It is a very awesome coast. I'm really appreciative my mom decided to have me on the West Coast. A lot of our family is from Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, and it is horrendous when it snows there. So, sorry, Pittsburgh. I can't handle it. (laughs) How is the comic book scene in that area, your area? My area? Oh, it's amazing. We have nothing but, like, amazing artists, and I'm a writer, so for me, finding artists to work with is very important. I find that we have a not a diverse scene in Portland, Oregon, but uh, I've got it more in Seattle, Washington, and definitely in uh, California. So my sister states are definitely full of really great talent. That sounds pretty nice. That kind of sounds like Richmond, where it's like a mix. And that's where I got into the comic book scene a lot. Okay. It was pretty diverse, but then 
you notice that oh, there's not a lot of us. <laughs> we kind of- <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the I'm that only black friend. Um, when I go to a show or when I like go to a uh, a convention, this is actually the first year I'll be doing a specific convention here in Portland. Where before in the past, as far as diversity levels were concerned, it was very non-existent. And apparently someone who works for, I think, ReadPop might have made mention that it wasn't very diverse. So that seems they've been reaching out and trying to make it more inclusive this time for a change. So I have been invited. I know a few other people who have been invited. And I'm very excited to see this change because we've existed here in this area for over 10 plus years. So, hey, thanks for noticing us. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the things I've noticed is that in the art scene, especially in the comic book scene, that they're, they're starting to, like, reach out because they notice this problem, only because we, like, yell that about it a lot. And it's great that they're doing this. And I guess one of my favorite questions to ask is, like, what was, like, your first comic book you know oh man this is janky (laughs) not the question but the comic that i read Um, (laughs) the the first comic book that i read was actually it was casper the ghost and mad magazine i didn't really have a lot as far as selection i wouldn't say that as a kid my supermarkets in my area carried a lot It wasn't until maybe a few years when I was towards my preteen stage that I got into X-Men and some really terrible titles that never got a continuation whatsoever because they were terrible. So I would definitely say Casper the Ghost (laughs) (laughs) and and Bad Magazine were kind of like uh, things that weaned me. And then what was really awesome is is I moved on to really awesome comics like Creepy, which is basically uh, Tales from the Crypt for kids. Oh, yeah. Not really for kids, but I read it anyway. My mom didn't seem to care at the time. I moved into those. I was really into the Outer Limits when I was a kid, so it was definitely up my alley. I kind of had a similar experience where it's like, it was mainly the supermarkets that I noticed comics. And my aunt's dad, who had this huge collections, and I didn't mean, I didn't understand. He would lend me, you know, his precious, like, X-Men comic books. And so... It's kind of like weird to pinpoint the first one, but I just knew it was X-Men. I remember that. I knew it was Casper for me because I think I still have like a disintegrating copy that is in a trunk somewhere. (laughs) All the crud that I've carried around with me since I was a kid. I remember specifically meeting Wendy and being like, why isn't this comic just about Wendy? Because she was way better and a witch. Mm -hmm. And then eventually... Wendy did get her own comic series, just pointing that out. But um, <laughs> but before that, it was just all about Casper. So it was a really fun experience as a kid to have something that you enjoyed, not only on television, but also in your hands to kind of flip through and read and enjoy the adventures while you're going through with these characters. And then I got into weird, creepy stuff, because why not? Yeah, no, I, I completely understand. I was a Tales from the Crypt kid. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> And so what got you into, like, what made you think, I want to get into comics, like, I have to? Okay, so the the very quick and easy version of this answer mm-hmm. is I was chilling with my girlfriend. I was in the middle of writing a very long prose novel, 
And I got very bored with prose because of the formula and the rules and what I pretty much didn't want to abide by because I had been a slam poet for so many years. I had nothing but this freeform style of writing that I wanted to go with. However, I'm not a huge fan of like E.E. E. Cummings up a page. So <laughs> I looked at my, my writing and uh, my girlfriend was really into it at the time. And I was like, you're an artist. Why don't you draw my characters for me? And, you know, don't ever ask your significant other for free art. Just kidding. <laughs> always ask your significant other for free art. She liked the story, so she doodled some things up for it. And then next thing I know, we were making a comic together, actually. That's and that, sweet. That was kind of it. My girlfriend was my biggest fan, and I'm her biggest fan. So we just kind of thrived off one another. That's really sweet. <laughs> That's a really nice coupley thing to do. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, why don't we do this really horrendous life commitment together and make a story together? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like a baby and it can last 18 years if you decide to go right in with like your mega epic long arc story. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I suggest as a, as a first time writer not doing that, especially to your significant other. But yeah, definitely, uh, it was all thanks to her that I got into comics. Oh, nice. Nice. And so that kind of brings me to my next question of, like, what brought you into the idea of making an anthology? Okay, so this one is really easy. I actually was a contributor to Beyond, the queer science fiction and fantasy anthology. I know that one. <laughs> Yay! Thank you! That's that's my book! <laughs> um, I was a contributor, and as life would have it, I ended up becoming the assistant editor. And then I ended up becoming the publisher. And then I ended up becoming the Kickstarter project manager. So, through that project with Sveyar Monster, he's the like best business partner on the planet, I pretty much utilized... Everything I already had knowledge-wise from working in poetry and working for a nonprofit into making sure that this book was born because it was kind of crumbling apart at a certain point and I couldn't stand to see it not happen. Mm -hmm. So I put together all my, all my pretty much every knowledge, all, all the information I had. And then I queried a lot of my friends to make sure I had anything that was not handled backed up and then kind of went forward. But while I was in the process of making beyond elements kind of popped into my brain and I was thinking, you know, it's really great that I get to do this really cool queer book. However, there weren't a lot of diverse people in this queer book. And not only that, but like I had done, I had been asked to edit an anthology of fairy tales prior to that. African fairy tales, and there is only one person of color making an African fairy tale. I was oh. just editing the book, and I was like, wait a second, this feels a little strange. What's going on here? And I, I kind of realized that in comics, we utilize a lot of our friends to help us with projects, and that can lead to a very whitewash situation, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So while undertaking the task of finishing up beyond thinking up this new project, we need diverse books was kind of a very big hashtag at the time on Twitter. 
And for me, I was a very firm believer and supporter, and I still am, of that hashtag. But I started questioning, well, yeah, if we need diverse books, don't we also need diverse creators to go with those books? Yeah. And that kind of began to formulate as in, okay, I, I need to make this anthology because I've got a kind of particular feeling that the industry wants to tell us, okay, we'll give you diverse books, but only if we get to edit it the specific way we want and only with the specific creators that we want. Yeah, that reminds me of something that this one creator, Iron Spike, I know her by her like name, that name. Yeah. Yeah, and I was listening to her panel and she was like, I mean, I'm not telling you guys not to write these characters or anything like that, but you need to be conscious of, like, who are the people's creating it and, you know, who are the people editing it. Yes, exactly. Because it's the it's the backbone work that people don't really look at so much. They look at the characters and they see diversity in the characters, but when you start to peel at the layers and there's no diversity... As far as, like, there's no one working on the cover, there's no one editing, there's no one doing pre-press, there's no one doing production, there's no one doing design, who is part of any of these cultures that this book is supposed to represent. Doesn't that strike anyone as a little bit odd? But that hasn't been the current question Mm -hmm. that's been being brought up to these industry giants that we're supposed to look up to and think, oh, yeah, you guys are doing good you're finally representing us and understanding us. It's like, no, actually, you're just doing bare minimum. Exactly. And so um, one of the things that I want us to be able to hear is, like, getting into the nitty-gritty of elements, like what it is about and what are the themes. And I, I saw that this recent theme is fire, and so I just want to hear more about elements. No worries. So elements is this book that is... My baby. It's my brainchild. And pretty much it is 200 plus pages. It's 33 contributors right now. Maybe even possibly growing because I've had some people come up last minute and ask to be a part of it. I wanted something that wasn't just sci-fi and fantasy because I feel we have these very diverse stories inside of ourselves that we would like to tell I want to give as much space and as much platform for these stories to be showcased as possible. So I made it a speculative fiction book. That means that I have sci-fi and fantasy, but I also have alternative cyberpunk. I've got suspense. I've got humor. I've got some darker stories. But I wanted to make it very clear to everyone who was a part of it that I wanted it to be all ages. I know a lot of us say that We like to read the books or create the books that we didn't have when we were children. But for me, my focus is I want to make sure that these books now exist for my nieces and nephews and the other generations that come behind me because I've got my own things that I've coped and dealt with now. Putting together fabulous spotless books is kind of where I'm going from this point on. Elements was pretty much also a kind of a focus on no longer being the sidekick or the token character. These characters are of color and they are the main characters. And these characters come from their own creators who are also of color telling these stories themselves and not having to be narrated or edited for a, a particular focus. They get to have that freedom while following on the theme of fire. 
for the theme of fire, I didn't specifically say, hey, everybody, draw fire in your stories, because that's <laughs> what everyone wants to see. I gave them freedom. I said, here's a Pantone color. We're going to do a spot color book. It's going to be an off red color. So that means I need to see your innovation here. I need to see what you can pull from this color and from this theme as far as the stories you want to tell. And they were spectacular. Every every story is amazing and none of them are the same. They went above and beyond as far as I'm concerned as an editor in providing a unique experience for all 200 plus pages for the reader to experience and go through with them. And we tackle a few things like gentrification or the needings of conformity, but we do it in a very eloquent way where the art also speaks for itself in very high volumes. That sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) When I was looking at it, I was reading about it. I was like, oh man, why did I see this? So I can (laughs) beg to get in here. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, we plan on doing more volumes if this first one's successful. I said the same thing when we were doing Beyond. And lo and behold, we were very lucky by all the amazing contributions that were given, all the amazing press, everything, the love that was given to that book led to where where it is today, which was we won a Lambda Award. And we've never dreamed that that was possible It's just kind of been mind-shattering from day one how much support we've received for our dreams. That's so exciting. And so, like, listening to you talking about bringing this all together, and I just want to ask a question for, like, people who have an interest in pulling the anthology together. Like, what are the things that you learned while doing this and, you know, some of the challenges I would say learn to herd cats. (laughs) (laughs) People are going to go every which way they want. Have your numbers down. Know what it is that you want clearly as a focus for the theme of your book. Know what it is clearly that you want to have as kind of like the backbone to the book. There's a lot of work that goes into making a book. So build a team if you have to, to help you along the way. Don't be afraid to ask questions especially from people like myself who have already done it. If you have one, let them know. We are more than happy to kind of help you succeed because there are other people along our path who have helped us succeed. I wouldn't say that I've had any trials and tribulations as much to talk about for Elements. This book was easier even than Beyond because at certain points I wasn't sure if Beyond was going to happen But Elements has been one of those things where the only thing it hinges on is the Kickstarters kind of reaching fulfillment. So I just know that I have kind of an uphill battle to fight to make this book happen. And I'm going to be doing it while baring my teeth the whole way. That sounds inspiring. (laughs) (laughs) Only because this is the type of stuff that I'm like really into. And I know there are other people who are like, gosh, how do people pull this stuff together? And it's like to, you know, listen to somebody, you know, talk about this. It's like, this doesn't seem like it could be too bad, you know? <laughs> it's, it'll take a lot of your time. I tell people it's more of a time commitment than they imagine. I have a regular life with my partner of eight years, and sometimes I do overwork myself. I don't have weekends to myself anymore when I'm doing a project, and I definitely don't know what taking time off is sometimes, but 
you have to remember and make that time for yourself. It's what's going to keep you sane mm. while you're going through a project because they are very long and they are involved. Definitely make sure you have resources where if you don't have the answer to a question, don't make it up. Don't even let someone else try to guess for you. Go to someone who does know the answer and let them give you the answer so you can go forward with a clear direction so that the book does happen and that it happens on time. I see a lot of projects that unfortunately fall into a lot of potholes due to the fact that they just didn't have the necessary information given to them at the beginning. Another thing that I wanted to touch on was just like we kind of like touched on it a little bit earlier. Do you see a positive like shift in how people are approaching comic books, not only in like the mainstream Marvel and DC and, you know, image and dark horse and whatnot. Do you see like a future that they're going to start really listening to us when we make these anthologies, when we're like, okay, we'll take the reins and make our own stuff and you'll learn. I think it's already pretty evident from watching Spike actually make her anthologies. I see a lot of comic book companies now making their own, you know, erotic imprints um not to say that they're not to say that they're copying not to say that they they don't see money you know piling up on the floor or whatnot but um definitely she's one to look out for she now is a publisher of her own right and is releasing a slew of announcements for books that are going to be coming out from iron circus comics i think there's no way they can ignore us anymore and as we get more aggravatingly annoying to them, <laughs> it's going to be even worse because the problem is, is you don't understand you made us do this. Now you have to deal with the consequences of that it's been done. And we're not going to go down quietly and we're not going to be really cute about it and be very grateful for your opportunities and your chances of advancement. We're going to be very direct about it because Activism in its own way, shape or form, is something that hasn't really existed in comics. It's been in this very stagnant state of, well, the status quo is what it is, and we're just going to let it go. But now these other voices are banging at our doors, and they're getting harder to ignore because they're calling us out so hard, because they have no fears. We don't have anything that we can hold over their heads. It's not that they can't get published anymore. It's not that they can't make it into the market and find their own distribution or various other gates that they used to have locked in front of us. Those have all been pretty much dismantled. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm fine with dismantling the whole darn system from the inside out because <laughs> it needs its own little washing. So yeah, we're but just going to do everything and anything to make sure that they know we're here now. Yeah. <laughs> like that age old complaint of like, why don't you make your own stuff? And it's like, okay, oh, yeah. we will. And then okay. they get mad when we do. <laughs> yeah. I want you mad now. I want you so mad. I want everyone to know how mad you are at me. Please let them know because it does nothing but better me and my goal and tell me that the direction that I'm taking my life in and the, the works that I would like to share with people in the right direction. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's what I think all the time. I'm always just like, I'm at this point where I just want to make them mad because I'm doing better <laughs> all by myself. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really nice that other books are succeeding. 
that they do have a very diverse and wonderful voice um, from Miss Marvel to Black Panther. It's great to see these strides being made, but the existence of where they're coming from to just sate the voices. Um, no, that's not going to fly. Yeah. They always like to do this public backtrack or this public like, well, you know, like when people were like, hey, this new Doctor Strange movie feels kind of weird because you're putting these white people in these Asian roles. And <laughs> it was kind of like, well, if you think about it, it would be racist if we did. <laughs> you know, I can't even wrap my brain around it. My moment of stop with Marvel was the moment that their CEO donated to Trump's veteran fund. I was like, that's it. I'm done. I am literally, there is nothing you can say to me that would make me say that this is sane somehow. That, yeah. this, is, that this is something that I want to promote or that I want to be part of in any way, shape, or form. It's not going to happen. We're done. Me and Marvel are done. Um <laughs> They're whitewashed movies. Me me and Marvel are definitely done. Mm-hmm. I've, I've grown up and I've dealt with a lot as far as I would think. Me and you growing up and seeing kind of like our, our culture go from like the top as far as like black television and black representation in television. And then in 2000, it just kind of like dropped. Ah! It just changed. Like it completely changed. And now it feels like we're fighting for table scraps again. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Not at all. No, I I can't deal with this. I I can't see that happen again, which is the sating part where they give you a little bit for a little while and then eventually they pull it back. Yeah. I want the whole damn table. You should tell me how much it is because I'm going to buy it right now and then walk out with it. (laughs) Yeah, the whole vote with your money. uh, It works a little bit and they're just like, oh, yeah. They do the other sating us a little bit and, you know, being surprised that, wow, so many of the the people of color, the blacks and whatnot are coming yeah. in and watching our movies and then yeah. taking it right back out because they were like, now we can trick them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, you know, it's and I understand like making subplots and whatnot to um, appease the Chinese market or the Korean market. Those markets are awesome. They exist for a reason. They should be catered to and taken care of. But what about our market? What mm-hmm. about everybody who's just here, who already exists, who already is making these movies to begin with, being casted as sub-side character roles and whatnot? What about our subplots? What about our side stories? Like, where are those? Mm-hmm. Well, we're only good enough to be the bad guys or... Yeah, we're hot funny. bad guys, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And speaking of promoting and putting, well, not we're not promoting Trump, but putting our money into something. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no one's doing that. Trust me, Scotland's definitely not doing that. <laughs> but for elements, for elements that you got your Kickstarter going and just like, you know, for people who want to help out, like, is there any information on that and any information on like for people who might not have the money right now, how they can help out? Absolutely. So first off, it's a 31 day campaign. So if you don't have the money now, that's fine. And if you don't have the money later, that's also fine. If you want to help us spread the word, that would be completely appreciated. We have a website. It's www.elementsanthology.com. We also will have lots of comics that we'll be posting for free on various web sources. Those will also be linked on the website. We also have a great slew of amazing artists that you can check out. 
like Kristen Garland. She did the cover for our book. She's also the artist for Steven Universe and the Crystal Gems. Mm. We've got comics from Yasmin Liang. You can go check out Star Trek Ongoing. Rashad Dosett, who's doing an Oni book called Alabaster Shadows. Nina Matsumoto and Dershing Helmer. They have free web comics that you can go read. Go support these amazing people of color, these people who are making their own stories the way that they want to, telling them in fantastic ways and making them available for you. So if you can't support us, that's fine. I have no problem with that. There's been many a days and many a Kickstarters I've missed as well. But if you would love to uh, donate to us, again, elementsanthology.com. All the information will be available on the website on July 1st. Nice. And how can people reach you? Uh, like social media is anything like that? Yeah, I am Nika Neeks on Twitter, and I'm also Nika Neeks on Tumblr. I mean, double branding, right? Yes. And, uh, also, my email inbox is always open to the public. It is tanikastots at gmail.com. Remember, be in love with the T's because that's what my family was. But um, <laughs> you can find me there. I'm very active on Twitter. I'm very active on Instagram, but not so much on Tumblr. I just repost a bunch of stuff, so it's a throwaway account. <laughs> I'll probably follow you anyway. Yeah! <laughs> Yay! I'm up to 200 followers. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Tumblr is one of those weird sites where it's just like, I have it for promotion reasons. I have it for working on Beyond. I so just can't focus on it. I don't know why. I could send a, a million hundred forty character tweets in a day, but I can't make one darn Tumblr post. It's like the reverse for me. Like I can <laughs> blog a bunch of stuff, post a bunch of stuff, and tweeting. It's like, oh, I forgot I had a Twitter for like three months. <laughs> Everybody's got like their little like what they gravitate more towards. My friends are guilty of it too, except Spike. Spike's terrible. He can update everything, and it, it makes me so mad. <laughs> yes. I love her Twitter. <laughs> oh, her Twitter's so good. I was just Skyping with her before I was Skyping with you. Small world, I love it. <laughs> All right. Oh, man, this is great. Thank you so much for joining us at the Black Girl Nerds Podcast and speaking with me. Yeah, no worries. I definitely loved it. I wanted to express my fire. I hope I did. I hope I got you excited for the book. And yes. I really, I really appreciate all of the love that Black Girl Nerds has given and done for the community this day, because it's, it's been amazing. And again, another game changer. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, no worries. I'm so sorry for messing up your name. <laughs> uh, I'm so embarrassed. I think, I think, no, please don't be. Uh, the best one I ever got was I was doing nationals and I was on a stage. I was getting called onto a stage to a sold-out show of about, I think, 5,000 or so people. And someone was like, Tanaka Scott. And I was like, wow, I really can't follow that one up. Like, oh, wow. So, no, actually, you're not the worst. And I love you, so it doesn't really matter. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Tanika Stotts. <laughs> for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It has been a, a super pleasure. 
Winner of the 2015 American Black Film Festival Screenplay Competition, sponsored by TV One, Bad Dad Rehab is about four men who are fathers to their children, but not dads. Sean, played by Wesley Jonathan, wants to see his kids, but his vengeful ex-wife wants the back child support he owes first. Tristan, played by Robert Richard, would rather pay out of pocket for a pair of designer sneakers than a fraction of what that is his child's winter coat. Jared, Rob Riley, is a single guy who prefers to pay child support instead of pay attention to his teenage daughter. And rounding out the crew is Pierre, played by Rick Gonzalez, who just doesn't give a damn about his son, period. All four actors are in this segment, hosted by KB. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. I am your host, KB, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing four talented gentlemen from the upcoming TV One film, Bad Dad Rehab. Please welcome to the podcast, Robert Richard, Rob Riley, Rick Gonzalez, and Wesley Jonathan. Thank you guys for joining Four talented, handsome. That's right, handsome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, what do you say? Yep, 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 I concur. <laughs> What's going on, world? How y'all doing? Thanks so much for joining I have had the pleasure of watching each of you in various TV shows and films that I love. I even got a chance to see an advanced screening of this film, Bad Dad Rehab, and really enjoyed it. So for those listeners that may not know that much about each of you yet, I wanted to ask you guys to just share a little bit about your start and what led you to become an actor and what lessons you've learned so far that have helped you continue to grow. So uh, we can start with Robert. Uh, you know, it's funny. I'm an L.A. kid. I'm an L.A. head coach. everybody in L.A. And uh, I played sports growing up, but I was a drag kid. I was in games and did all that kind of, you know, uh, dysfunctional stuff. And I was actually outnumbered in a fight and ran into a building, and the building happened to be an acting school, which is, like, the, the biggest reason I'm such an advocate for after school programs to give kids something to do that's productive as opposed to something destructive. But, you know, I ended up finding my life in, 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 uh, in entertainment, and uh, I still love it with the same passion today as I did the first day that I started. Wow. wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. Wow. Rob, you next. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I, I started acting out of a sense of obligation to my minority community at Lehigh University. Uh, it was a predominantly white school, uh, 93% at the time. We were doing a production of A Raisin in the Sun. Naturally, they needed some more black actors. I was a football player and an accounting student at the time. And um, they asked me to audition. I was in this intro to acting class. I said no a bunch of times. And then I started to feel like, well, you know, the school didn't really sanction very many events for the minority students, whether it was a party, whether it was a concert or anything. So here it was they, quote, unquote, gave us this play. And I figured if, if it didn't get done, then the school could maybe justify not putting on any other event for the entire time I was there. So I figured I might as well lend them my services. Uh, I auditioned. I had a call back. I didn't know what that was. I went to it. They told me to, uh, you know, check my name on the board. And unfortunately, they cast me as uh, Walter Lee Younger. I told them they made a mistake. And I didn't know I was going to remember any of those words or play a 36-year-old man. Um, <laughs> But I had, a, I had an amazing teacher, Cassie Johnson, uh, who was an adjunct professor there. She's an alum of Lehigh University. She's a tenured professor there now. And she, she told me I was more talented than I could ever imagine. One thing led to another. I did the play, followed in her footsteps, went to grad school. 18 months after that, I was on Broadway, and bing, bang, boom, here I am. Wow. Wow. 
West of here. Well, for me, how I got started, I was about, let's see, eight years old. I had a cousin who was in the industry who had done, like, little guest starring spots on the Jeffersons and things of that nature. I started dancing when I was, like, three, four years old. So I thought I was going to be Michael Jackson when I was little. <laughs> so I was, always, I was always performing, but I never thought about being an actor. Being young, all I wanted to do was play basketball, sing, and dance. So I was always known to, like, perform at, like, you know, the family gatherings. Anywhere I could hear music, I would, I would be dancing. So my female cousin, who was in the industry, asked my mom, what did she think about putting me in, in commercials and TV? So my mom and then sat me down on the couch, I'll never forget it, and asked me that I want to be, like, in TV commercials and TV shows and stuff like that so I can make money to buy Nintendo. <laughs> and um, I Yeah, that's how they persuaded me to, you know, and I was like, well, the first thing I thought about was like, well, yeah, but can I sing and can I dance? Can I do that? And they were like, yeah, it's all the kind of the same kind of thing. So I took some 8 by 10 headshots. I just did what I was told, not because I was forced to, but because, you know, I wanted to. Make a long story short, they, they shot my head, shot around to a couple of different agencies. We took a meeting with one agency that signed me on the spot. And about six weeks later, I got my first job on the TV show 21 Jump Street. After that, what happened was when the, the show aired, I went to school the next day, and all the kids, all the teachers were, like, flipping out that I was on this show. And I sat there in class daydreaming all day about the next job. So all I could do was wait. I couldn't wait to get out of school to go on the next audition to get the next job. So that's where the love for acting started. Wow. Wow, that's dope. Yeah. So Rick, Rick, tell us about yourself. So for me, I I think as early as five, I declared that I wanted to be an actor. I did it on a home video with my mom. My mom would like, my dad had like this gigantic film camera, this uh, video camera. And, and I think it was, uh, after doing all these school plays and stuff, I did a play in church. And uh, that was the first time my mom had seen me really act. And she was just like, wow, okay, you really are serious. So then I was able to audition for LaGuardia High School Performing Arts in New York. And, um, and, you know, I received my training there. I was fortunate enough to get an agent from that school. Like, that school was really instrumental in, like, kind of giving me the foundation of acting and the business. And I got an agent. I started working in New York. A buddy of mine introduced the idea of Los Angeles to me and said we should move there. And so I did. And fast forward to, you know, here I am now, just, what, 18 years later, just, you know, still at it, still going strong. And it's it's just been a huge blessing. And uh, I think that what I've learned is just I, I, I keep learning the lesson of humility and just how important that is to just, be humble to the entire process of acting, the craft, the the process of making a film, the process of making a TV show, how important it is to connect with others. And sometimes, like, when that energy is not reciprocated, how you can still manage to be in a good headspace to give a good quality performance or to, like, inspire and just to be able to, to do your part as an actor because all you can really control is what you do as an actor. And I think that's been always the, the, the recurring theme is understanding that process and how important it is to, you know, if if you do have the ability to create something with people that are on the same headspace as you, that's when the magic truly happens. And I think that's what was special about shooting Bad Dad Rehab with these guys was the amount of respect we have for the for the project 
and for the amount of respect we had for each other and how awesome that was. And so we came in with an amount of respect for each other that we we loved and, and for the project of even doing something for TV One and understanding that we could give something to the people that would mean a lot. And so, I, I, you know, I'm very thankful and blessed to be a part of this. Yeah, and I think it comes across on screen, just piggybacking off what you said. I mean, you see each of your performances are, are really, really good in the film, but together, even collectively, when you guys, you know, not to give too much away, because I know it's not premiering until Sunday, but when each of you are inside of the rehab and, and just sharing your own personal stories, um, that's a really wonderful thing to see. And, and having kind of Malik Yoba at the helm, you know, like pushing you guys to be better fathers. Uh, it's really incredible. So Wesley, uh, in Bad Dad Rehab, your character is the only one who really actually wants to see his kids and be invested in their lives. Due to a child support battle with his ex-wife and her lack of help in any way, he can't. So tell us why your character chooses to go to rehab when he seemingly has, you know, a fairly good relationship with his kids. And what is his initial reaction when he receives the uh, bad dad rehab flyer? Well, it doesn't show it in the film, but it's stated. Not only does this rehab center help, you know, fathers come to know uh, themselves, as, as well as addressing and facing their, their situations and, and being honest with themselves and admitting and coming to the set terms that they're not the greatest fathers. It also has a program that shows and helps fathers deal with their child support or legal battles as well. We don't tap into that particularly uh, in the actual film. You don't see it, but it is stated. So my, my character's reasoning for going is more so to look for some sort of assistance and his legal issues. And you do actually see a little bit of assistance through uh, Malik Yoba's character in that regard. So that's really my character's draw to going is because I need help, you know, maybe getting my child support situation together and that whole thing. My, my reaction to when uh, the, rehab, uh, <laughs> the rehab idea is thrown at me is, is like everybody else's reaction, like, what the heck is this, man? I don't need to go to this. You know what I mean? This, this is not for me. But my sister in the film, Candace Burst, uh, the group Escape, she tells me that, you know, this program may be able to help me with, you know, my uh, child support and legal legal assistance. Yeah. So that's why I end up saying, all right, you know, I'll go. But it's reluctant like everybody else. Right. And so, you know, what drew you to the role of Sean? You know, how does he really differ from any of the other characters that you've played before? Uh, well, the, big, the, the biggest thing is that I'm, I'm a new father. So, Congrats. you know, I've never played, I've never played, thank you, I've never played a father before in all my, all my uh, 20, 25 years of this business. So that was the biggest thing. And it wasn't necessarily the character himself that drew me to, to this, the movie. The movie is a collective thing. Everybody, all the characters that all the guys are playing, including mine, really is what was the draw. It was, it was an ensemble because each of these characters, including mine, I know these guys. You know, one of my business partners, he uh, can't see his kids now, and not because he doesn't have the money, but because going through the divorce, his wife wants more money. So he has two children he can't see. I can relate to, you know, to that to a degree. Um, I got a lot of friends and family that are played by, you know, Rick and uh, uh, both Rob. So the story as a collective ensemble unit, like, in itself is what drove me 
to want to be a part of this film. It's just a really great story. I can't express that enough. I tell people all day when they're asking me, like, what's next and what's, what you're doing? It's just like, this is a story that needs to be told. My character in particular, I just like his character because he's a voice for all those fathers out there who, who really want to see their kids, but their kids are being hostage by their, uh, their ex-wives or their baby's moms. And, you know, these, it's a voice that you never hear about. You always hear about the negative part, how the dad wasn't there, whether it be due to drugs, running in the streets with women, or just not being there for whatever reason. But you never really hear about the, the brother or the, or the father who wants to be there, who wants to spend time with his kids and be there, but can't. It's rare. Rarely heard. Very rare. And I think uh, each of the characters goes through such drastic uh, transformations. And obviously, Sean, uh, you know, is has a major transformation of his own just you know getting to where he needs to be and to the point that he wants to be with his kids so Robert Richard you know you've managed to take a variety of roles over the years and and play a lot of characters that are funny gritty and you know the list goes on in Bad Dad Rehab you play Tristan who is more selfish and and self-absorbed than he really is selfless when it comes to his kids so what ultimately uh, ends up pushing him to become a better dad in the film? Yo, Tristan is an amazing character. First of all, I got five kids, right? based on the principle. Ain't nobody gave me allowance. And so I kind of brought that to the character. The reason why I'm here shining in this grill, these gold chains, and these sneakers, because I worked hard, and me being a father means to encourage my kids to work as hard as I did. But then there's an intervention, too, about where that really comes from. And that was special that I got to go, like, maybe the broadest, you know, arc of all the characters from being the most wild to sort of coming to, like, learning what the importance of fatherhood is and how that's cool, too. Right. Uh, my character, Tristan, was uh, based off of a guy named Tristan that the Tiki, the writer, do personally. So she was really very, like, protective of how that character was portrayed. And I got to go research and be a method actor and kind of wall out and have a good time on the film, even though I got down to my heavier scenes when it got to the thick of it. Yeah, so your heaviest scene was probably one of my favorite scenes in the film. Share what your favorite part, yeah, your your heaviest scene when you interact, and I don't want to give too much away, but when you have the, the big kind of, Incredible scene. Yourself. Incredible scene. And your yeah, it's definitely it's, it's, it's definitely my favorite too. It's Wesley, but my favorite. It's one of my definitely favorite. it's definitely mine. It's definitely mine. <laughs> so uh Robert, share what your favorite you know, scene from the film is. Oh look, we have an extra joint. Yo, listen, listen. <laughs> I have a lot of I have a lot of favorite scenes, but by not giving people say that maybe Rob Riley's daughter That was incredible. That that was incredible. Because that's going to become a whole other thing. You're going to start dad living in, you know, the world that we live in now, 21st century, being in videos with their kids. I love it. It's <laughs> so funny and so classic. And he does it in a way that I'm participating, but I'm still the dad. So uh, I love I love Rob Riley seeing his daughter when he's dancing. I think it's a hilarious scene. It and, is. Um, yeah. And share just kind of share what your favorite on set moment was from filming with these guys. Uh, I think I think one of my favorite one of my favorite on set moments was uh, fighting with Rick. Because <laughs> no, because Rick is so damn talented. <laughs> I'm like, yo, bro, don't try to steal my movie from me, bro. 
Incredible. So Rob Riley, I have become a fan of Hit the Floor. And, you know, I didn't start watching until season two. And then I had to go back and, and binge watch season one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, your character, Terrence, is, is passionate. He's devious. He's hardworking. He's sneaky. He's persistent. Tell me, you know, kind of what your character Terrence on Hit the Floor and your character Jared in Bad Dad Rehab have in common. And then tell me how they're different. Well, um, the main difference, well, the, the one main thing they have in common is the fact that they're both incredibly successful. They're both at the height of their careers and uh, and actually starting to branch off into different endeavors. As, uh, as you can see, Jared tells you very, very clearly what his plans are for the company that he's working in, and Terrence is obviously in a position where he's trying to buy the team. So that's one of the things they have in common. They're intelligent. They are uh, sophisticated men, you would say, since they like to wear suits and ties and pocket squares and such. Um, they're, you know, they have, they speak a certain way. They carry themselves a certain way. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're still brothers that you can relate to that, you know, you know that work in an office, the CEO of whatever company it is, this professional athlete. You know, Terrence Wall is modeled a lot after Kobe Bryant, um, somebody who you really only see the clean and polish of. Um, and they're, when they're in public settings, et cetera, et cetera, not the kind of person to get into an argument with his girlfriend in public. But one of the things that they have, you know, the biggest differences has to be the fact that Terrence, you know, especially in season three when it was that pregnancy scare, was right there ready to step up. And his child, his potential child, immediately became one of the most, the most important thing in his life. And that's obviously not the case for Jared. Uh, Jared you know, has has continually shirked his responsibilities um, as a father and only really sees um, the fact that there are bills to be paid and he can pay them without even thinking about it. Um, and he's very proud of that. You know, that's a huge difference. And, and um, thankfully, Jared realizes that he's lacking a little bit of that Terrence in him. And then he figures out exactly what it is he needs to do. Um, it's not all roses. It's, I think, one of the better um, parts of this film. And the stories that it tells is that uh, it doesn't wrap everything up in a nice pretty bow at the end and say, see, look, if you did this, your life is fine. It says you can try. And it's never too late to try. And if you try, you never know what's going to happen. But chances are it will be positive. Um, and at the end of the day, these people whose lives you have not been a part of, they have been, they've been wanting you to be a part of their lives. They want that more than anything else. If it manifests itself in disgust, if it manifests itself in hate, if it manifests itself in lashing out and, you know, behavior that's unbecoming, whatever it is, they really just want you in their life, and you need to be there. And if you give it an effort, you never know what will happen. And that's true. And, and you did touch on it a little bit, you know, Jared really just – 
will pay for everything, right? So he purchases a lot of material things and he'll pay child support. He'll take care of his ex-wife and his daughter financially, uh, but he doesn't really spend that quality time. So I can imagine that it was a challenge to a degree playing a character that was so, you know, intentionally disconnected from their child. So what did you use to kind of draw inspiration for Jared and, you know, get the depth for this character? Uh, well, I was, I will, I will say fortunately, I was fortunately raised by just my mother and my maternal grandmother because my father seemed to be pretty good at doing what Jared did, only he didn't pay for anything, so he was even worse. Um, so I didn't really have to look very far for the inspiration. Um, and I also, I also work really, really hard, as, as you heard Rick saying earlier, nobody travels more than me right now because of all the things I'm trying to do, and, and um, I've definitely put aside a relationship or two in the past in order to make that happen. And maybe for the better, maybe to the worse, who knows? Uh, I like where I'm at now, so I'm not complaining. I like who I'm with now, so I'm not complaining. But uh, I didn't have to look very far, you know. I wasn't raised by my dad. My dad, you know, completely fucked off, pardon me, his responsibilities and uh, for myself and my, my brother. And he had other children, and he lived in the same borough of Brooklyn that I lived in, and he raised those children to whatever extent he did. So, um, you know, that's, that's also part of the reason why I did this film, because my I wasn't raised by my dad, and he never got a chance to make that amends. He passed away in 2008 before he ever got a chance to say sorry or try to be a part of my life. Ironically enough, right around, or it was weeks before my debut on Broadway. Um, so, yeah, it was right there. The inspiration was right there. And part of the reason why I did it is that, you know, hopefully, as Rob said, you know, these people can see this film and make a decision to try make a decision to try to actually, you know, try and reconcile the, for lack of a better phrase, shittiness that they've been causing in their children's lives. Yeah. And I do think that like this film can definitely help generate some conversations within families, within our communities, right. To be able to kind of drive and those changes and just say, it, it's never too late to repair a, a broken relationship, you know, um, if you want to. Absolutely. So Rick, incredible performance pierre's transformation again every character has you know his transformation pierre's transformation um and you know how he gets planted uh, sort of firmly even more firmly in his faith throughout the journey of the film uh, is really interesting to see so if you could describe bad dad rehab in five words what would they be i wrote them down i wrote uh <laughs> i wrote emotional funny sincere uh, insightful and honest. Um, I think those are the biggest, the ones that come out to me like screamingly, you know, it's just, there's just so much honesty. I think Kiki, the writer, just, you know, she mentioned before that she had asked on Facebook for moms to write in their, you know, bad dad stories, you know, and so she collected a lot of data on the truth about these scenarios and, and exactly what women are going through in terms of having the husband or the boyfriend or the baby daddy, for, for lack of a better term, who's not present in the child's life. And so there's a lot of truth in, in these four scenarios, you know, and kind of play out. And even though we spoon feed it to you in a really well done film and there's a lot of humor and there's a lot of elements there that, you know, at the end of the day, we want to give you a really good film to watch. But we also want to ground it with truth and emotion that bears, you know, honesty and sincerity. And so, um, 
you know, when I looked at the five that I wrote down, I'm like, these are the qualities that a good man should have. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He should he should be emotional. He should be sincere. He should be honest. You know, um, he he you know, if he's funny, that's a great quality to have. And so I feel like you know, the film encompasses things that you know are important to the character, uh, the, each character in this film, and and what they're going through. And so, um, you know, that that was what came to mind right away. Oh gosh, yeah, that's incredible. And so you know. So in the film, Pierre's growth really is put into motion very early on by a tragic scenario, and he has to get back to his faith really because of it. So why do you think Pierre is so reluctant to really give his all during the Bad Dad rehab, and how does his own relationships with his parents kind of play into that? So the the, the thing about Pierre is, um, I don't want to give too much away about the film, but he's he's disconnected because of what he's went through as a child with his dad and how he he didn't have the connection with his father in his life. And so that made him shut down in a way where he could not accept responsibility for the child that he created and the recklessness of, I think he speaks to, you know, the, the, the men and uh, even women, you know, who uh, fornicate and have meaningless relationships and, sexual endeavors with people and then, you know, have, have the important thing about doing that type of stuff is that you can make a child, you know, and then there's a sort of responsibility that you have to assume and, and own when you do something like that. And I think, you know, living recklessly and having that, that lifestyle and then all of a sudden you created a human being and now you want to turn your back on it. And I think he speaks to the idea of someone who's already broken living a reckless lifestyle and then not taking responsibility or or facing his truth, and which is one of the reasons why I love this film is like the healing and facing the truth and accepting the responsibility. That's the beginning of it all. You know, when someone assumes responsibility genuinely and understands and has true remorse and says, this is where I want to change. I think that's the most important thing about this film and his character and where he is in his life. Wow. Yeah. So, Wow. So Bad Dad Rehab, um, you know, it's going to premiere this Sunday, but I also wanted to give kind of each of you an opportunity to talk about what's next. So what's up next for you after after the premiere of Bad Dad Rehab? What else do you have in the works? This is Robert. So after Bad Dad Rehab, I'm looking for, uh, we're looking forward to some distribution for another independent film I have out called um, Destined, which stars myself. Uh, Corey Hardrick, Lala Anthony, Mo McCray, Hill Harper, Jesse Metcalf. That's a great film about another film about the choices that we make in life and the fact that it's not too late to change. Uh, it takes place in Detroit, um, focuses a lot on the gentrification of Detroit and the um, systematic breakdown of that community. Other than that, I'm uh, you know it's the summertime, so I'm typically touring the world promoting Caribbean carnivals. I just finished Carnival here in Hollywood. Hollywood Massive is uh, it's my carnival production company. We just had an amazing, amazing carnival run here, four events, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, Saturday's parade shut down Hollywood Boulevard. Um, you can, uh, If you look at my Instagram, one of the last videos I posted, you'll see the madness that it was. Uh, it was absolutely amazing. I, I couldn't be happier. The band grew by 800% from its first year to its second. So that's part of what I do as well. So you know? do, you do, um, do you do this for just in L.A., or do you do it in other places as well? Uh, well, Hollywood Massive either produces Carnival or we cover Carnival. Um, I've got some partner bands in the Barbados, Crave the Band, uh, 
in New York, Sesame Flyers, and uh, in London, match with a different. I'll be in St. Lucia this year, but Hollywood Massive production, as far as the carnival is concerned, from the trucks to the costumes to the DJs to the confetti in the road, and that's all done here in Los Angeles. And that's once a year, and it typically is on BET Weekend. That's Saturday before BET Weekend. Okay, great. So, Robert, Richard, so what other releases or projects do you have in the work? And maybe tell us a little bit more about your period piece, Bolden. Yeah, absolutely. I have a great biopic coming out called Bolden. Uh, it's about the birth of jazz music. So uh, there's a guy named Buddy Bolden who lived in the world in about the 1890s. He's basically like R. Kelly, but like 100 years ago. <laughs> so he's famous for all the great music that R. Kelly's known for, kind of, and also for the bad things that R. Kelly's known for, too. But I play um, a clarinet player from a true artist named George Baquet, who played in New Orleans, and it's a fantastic film. And then I have Chocolate City 2 coming out well. And then, you know, we have a great relationship with TV1 now you know, from doing this movie and being such a great positive thing to have an original script that won Best Screenplay, and now we produce it within a year, and it's coming out July 3rd, Sunday, only on TV1 at 7 p.m., 6 p.m. Central. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, just looking to, you know, put more great product out there right now. I'm excited about the future, and this is a great, uh, you know, launch pad milestone in my career. Awesome. Great. And so, Rick, well, um, you know, congrats on on getting Wild Dog for season five of Arrow. I'm actually a huge Arrow fan, so really, oh, thank you. Really excited to see your portrayal of that. Have you, you gotten the first script? Can you spill anything and tell us what else is next outside of Arrow? I, I spill anything on Arrow, Stephen Amell, and David Ramsey <laughs> will kill me the moment I get to Vancouver. So I like my life. I don't want to die. And uh, so, yeah, but I did read the first two scripts and they are freaking awesome. And so uh, I think the Arrow fans are going to be super excited and stoked about the the projection and the, the, the direction that they're moving in this season. Um, and I think it's going to be a little more grittier, more just kind of, I guess, maybe going back to the essence, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but that's all I can say. It, it just, it, it's going to be freaking awesome. Awesome. And anything else you have that's coming out? Uh, I did a movie called Deuces with Lorenz Tate and Megan Good that that I'm hopefully, you know, that people will get to see maybe sometime this year. So we'll see. It's just, uh, produced by Queen of Peoples Production Company and uh, a really good crime drama. So that would be a nice, good thing for people to watch the end of this year. Hopefully something fun to watch. Awesome. So, Wesley, so I know Soul Man just ended. Right. What's up that's next for you after the premiere of Bad Dad Rehab? Uh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely nothing. I was supposed to be, um, I actually shot a pilot in New York during the filming of uh, The Soul Man. It was a Nicki Minaj pilot where I, I played uh, her father as a, a young girl. And that was an ABC pilot that is um, not going to happen now. They, they actually, with me, Salida Ebanks and Ariana Neal played young Nicki. Uh, Nicki Minaj, and they, I got a call from Tim Story, who directed the film, uh, directed the show, probably, excuse me, and um, the network wants to go older. They want to make the young Nicki 16, and which makes me and Solita Ebanks have to be like 45, so they want to revamp the whole script and do it all over, so uh, that was, that was going to go into that right after the soul, man, but that's not happening for now. Uh, back out to the grind. Okay. Well, I know that we all look forward to everything that's coming next for the four of you. If you guys would give your social media 
contacts and internet kind of shout outs for everyone so that they can follow you on, on Twitter and or Instagram? Yeah, so Weather Gonzalez and uh, mine is, uh, my Twitter is official with G and Instagram you can follow me at Rick Gonzalez. Wesley Jonathan, uh, mine is at W-E-S-L-E-Y J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at Wesley Jonathan for both Twitter and Instagram. Perfect. Robert yeah. Richard. Mine is uh, at underscore on Instagram. And that's that. Okay. Rob Riley, what's your social media handles? My social media handles are at Rob Riley NYC. That's R-O-B-R-I-L-E-Y NYC from New York City. It's an Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. Well, um, thank you guys again for joining the podcast. It, it was truly a pleasure. You guys are incredible. You know, I have seen the film. It's great. Thank you again for giving us your time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Aaron Elizabeth Burns can currently be seen opposite John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson in Stephen King's Cell. No stranger to the big screen, earlier this year, Aaron was part of Allegiant, the conclusion to the blockbuster Divergent series. Aaron can also be seen on shows such as Bird People, USA's Satisfaction, Funnier Dies, Officer Wanker, Worst Responder, and so many more. Aaron's passion for improv and comedy has currently sparked her own crazy YouTube series, The Adventures of Lizzie Belch, with new episodes that can be seen every week. Hi, everybody. I'm Tora Shea, and I have with me Aaron Elizabeth Burns. How are hi, you? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, Aaron is an amazing actress. She's been in films such as Allegiant, Beyond the Fire, and she's talking to us today about starring in the movie Cell. I know a lot of people are Stephen King fans, so I know I whenever I hear there's a new one coming out, I like wait with bated breath. And if I haven't read the book yet, I try to, <laughs> I try to read it as quickly as possible so that when I get to the theater, I can <laughs> I can compare and contrast and see how much I love it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I, I I feel really grateful because to be in a horror movie and to have it be written by Stephen King. That's yeah, about <laughs> as much as you can ask for. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of differences. Um, it, well, there's some, there's a lot, but like any book, you know, I think I think sometimes we forget that, you know, um, like for instance, if you listen to the audiobook of Cell. It's nine hours long. Mm -hmm. so, you know, you have to go from that down to 90 minutes, you know, when you make a film out of it. So, so sometimes there's some changes in it. But Stephen King did write the screenplay. So, yeah, so it was, you know, <laughs> definitely still from, you know, from his <laughs> brilliant, brilliant brain. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, luckily, it's got two of my favorite actors, Samuel Jackson and John Kizak. So you can't go wrong with that. So. <laughs> I mean, I am super excited, um, especially about the fact that Stephen King wrote the screenplay. I love his work so much. And I mean, I know I would be flipping out if I got the chance to be <laughs> in um, a movie that he wrote. So 
How much of a fan of Stephen King were you before the movie? Like when you got the call, <laughs> how did you react? I couldn't believe it. Um, <laughs> I mean, like I said, I mean, it's kind of the mecca of horror, you know? Yeah. I mean, like my, you know, I go back to The Shining. Mm. You know, that's probably the first, besides Jaws, you know, <laughs> which are scary in a different way. But I don't know. I think, I mean, there's, there's great, you know, there's great uh, horror filmmakers. There's Wes Craven. There's, you know, the, the director of our film directed Paranormal Activity 2, you know, so... I mean, there's just the ring, the grunt. There's so many franchises out there, but there's just, I'm sorry. Like it's Stephen King. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sorry. You just don't, you don't get, you don't get any bigger or, or more exciting than that. I I, I don't think anyway. And, um, yeah. Are you kidding? Oh my God. (laughs) The chain excited. Yeah. What I love the most about Stephen King, his work is that along with it being horror and it having like magical or mystical elements to it. A lot of times it's horror and it's kind of psychological aspect to it or a very real world aspect to it. Like, oh, this is something that could happen. Like with Cell, like it scares me because, you know, what if there's just like, well, I don't want to get, I don't want to spoil anything, but what if this is something that, you know, could be feasible I mean, so that (laughs) that's actually that's that's I love that you bring that up because I just posted something yesterday on um, uh, Instagram and and Facebook and Twitter uh, about like which one is scarier, The Shining or Cell? And actually, it's funny. A lot of people are saying Cell because because it's so cerebral and so Mm -hmm. uh, relevant today to today's society. I think. I think, you know, Stephen King, he doesn't just terrify you. It's based in surrealism. You mm-hmm. know, this idea of cell phones, you know, and the radiation going into our brain. We've seen that on the news. People are right. researching that, right? That That's something that's been talked about. And, no, I mean, I don't know. Are they, are you? Would you maybe turn into zombie crate, you know, crazy <laughs> killing machines? I, you know what? I don't know, but it makes for a great story, right? Right. It's a good movie. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think you hit it, the nail on the head, Tora. It it maybe I don't know could happen, and it's brilliant. I think it's it's coming out in a, a brilliant time right now because I mean the zombie apocalypse, like that's such a thing. You know, it's it's huge right now. The Walking yeah. Dead is still huge all this type of stuff so it's kind of yeah cell phone radiation to your brain meets walking dead you know um yeah and isn't that just does isn't that just brilliant of him the fact that he's able to take a genre like you know zombie horror and take it to a whole nother level like i so much of zombie movies and tv shows are repeated in that you know it's just oh they're just zombies because it's a disease or somebody got bitten but this they're zombies because of this whole other thing that nobody ever thought (laughs) it's because of technology that man created exactly so yeah he's brilliant beyond his years so yeah (laughs) so (laughs) not to keep harping on stephen king but what would you say is your favorite of his movies or novels Cell, are you kidding me? <laughs> I bet it is amazing. <laughs> Before Cell, I would have said Shining. 
true. That movie. I'm a grown-up now, and I still can't sit through it. Oh, no way! Are you kidding? Yeah. (laughs) I still need, like, a little breather. Just to... (laughs) It's funny. I I want everybody to go see this movie, but if I'm honest, this stuff scares the... (laughs) I won't say that on your show, but the leave out of me like <laughs> and um there's a lot of gore uh you know because there's, yeah. there's a lot of murder in it really yeah it's intense yeah so, so. i'm extremely biased right now so. <laughs> well that's good you should love the work that you do <laughs> so you've been in a bunch of other stuff what role has been your favorite i mean i know that you are elated to be in cell but yeah. um which role has felt more most comfortable for you? Denise, was she a character that spoke to you, or did you have another one? Um, I do love her because she's she's little. I'm, I'm, I weigh a hundred pounds. I'm a tiny. I'm a tiny person, and she is too. She's little, but she's six months pregnant in the film. Actually, yeah. She lost her family, her husband and her two kids, in. Uh, in what's called the pulse. The, the pulse is what happened that caused this uh, surge of energy to go into people's brains, and that's what turned them into these zombie-killing machines. They're called phoners right. in story. So she is. She lost her, her family, but she's surviving, and she carries a rifle and wears a black leather jacket, and I love that. Um, <laughs> I'm, kind, I'm like the, kind of the, the girl-next-door badass and so like I'm uh, another project I did was Satisfaction on the USA Network where I played the sweet office assistant girl who has that affection for her top boss most of the time you'll see people playing similar roles because that's how we see them right Right. um, I mean Meg Ryan is the quintessential girl next door rom-com you know actress right because she just exudes that yeah can see it in her face so yeah it, yeah so I, I would say probably those two um i have a project coming up i can't yet say it out loud because we haven't <laughs> yet but um it's kind of a she's a sweet girl next door conservative girl gets trashed in a bar and turns into a zombie kind of demon girl so I, i'm starting to see the roles that i'm getting seen as and i, I think it's great <laughs> I love it. Some people kind of tend to complain if when they get typecast, but I do see that others, other actors and actresses do tend to keep getting put into the same roles, but they flourish in them. So maybe it kind of depends on if you're being put into roles that you don't like um, versus, you know, loving the characters that you're portraying. That's, that's eloquently said. Yeah, I, I, I teach acting, too, and I tell young actors, typecast me all day long. <laughs> then you get to work. Right. There's so many actors that, that if you embrace who you are and what God's given you, whether you're the hot girl, whether you're the girl next door, whether you're the leading man, whether you're the, the sidekick, whoever you are, you know, it, whether you're the fat, funny guy. I mean, look, at Chris Farley made a, made a career out of being the fat, funny guy. I mean, <laughs> like, you know, and we all loved him and, and adored him, you know, and, and God rest his soul, he went too soon. But 
those are actors that have just completely embraced who they are and the gifts that God's given them. And I say typecast me all day long. I don't give a rip. <laughs> That's amazing. That's an amazing way to think of it. <laughs> so you've also been in Allegiant this year. Yeah. And I mean, I love the Divergent series. How did you like working on that movie? It was incredible. It's it was the it was the first big Hollywood trilogy series that I've I've been uh, lucky to be a part of, and the the amount of hands that go into making a project like that. I, I've never been on a set that big in my life. Really? Oh, it was unbelievable. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people coming together to make this story happen. It's just incredible. You know, and it's it's awesome to see. Uh, I mean, I had a small smaller role, but you know, to see the leads in that movie work day in and day out for months on end, early early call times, late to bed, professional. You're you're ready to go. It's just ah, uh, it's so inspiring. You know, a lot of people that aren't in the business, they have no idea how hard actors work and the schedule that they have to keep and the work that's at the in the in the physical demands you know those actors they're they're running half the film oh wow you know and um god yeah it was just it was incredible 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 so samuel l jackson is in the cell movie i mean he's so dynamic what was it like working with him he's everything you would want him to be he was kind he was generous during one of our rehearsals, he, he's like, all right, all right, all right, guys, let's try this. And then he, he did a little something. He goes, all right, Aaron, is this what your character would say right here? And I said, yeah. He said, all right, okay, she's got more words, everybody. <laughs> you know, just, God, just a doll of a man and um, just made everybody feel like we were all part of the team, you know. And he, he's, an, he's amazing. You know, he wasn't born into this. Uh, yeah. He he started out just like every other actor. Um, he's actually I'm I'm based here in Atlanta, and uh, he went to Morehouse College here in Atlanta. He moved to New York, did Off Broadway theater, and worked his way up the ladder. And that that's what I did too. I, I've got almost that exact same path, and I hope to continue in his footsteps. <laughs> he has been very successful, um, you know. And he's actually I've talked to a couple other. Um, actors that uh, have worked with him and he's actually one of the most underrated actors he should have been nominated several times for mm-hmm. some projects but what i found out is that there are some oscar-winning actors that have worked with him that have been tested because he's so good that he just he just makes everybody else on the set not not even know what to do sometimes because he's so good and i found that too he was so on point he didn't miss. He didn't miss a syllable. Oh of wow! Dialogue. He's on time. He's professional. You're never waiting on him. God, he's just a great guy. Just a great, great, great guy. One of the one of the parallels. Well, something hilarious that I realized. So I was watching Kingsman last night, and. Um, in that Samuel L. Jackson actually plays a villain who <laughs> tries to take over the world with cell phone technology. So I thought that was really, I thought that was really interesting how that kind of paralleled with this movie. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah. And you know, too, he, 
and John Cusack did uh, 1408 um, a couple years back, and that was another Stephen King film, and the same producers of 1408 also did Cell. So it was, it was uh, you know, that creative team had already worked together before, yeah. so yeah. I was really excited about that. You know, it wasn't their first rodeo together, and I thought that was great. And John's a huge Stephen King fan. Uh. <laughs> uh, today's actually his birthday so we should give give john cusack a shout out oh happy birthday john cusack <laughs> he is just as adorable as you would want him to be too he um so he was executive producer himself and during one of our rehearsals he said all right aaron if there's anything that you can remember that your character said in the book you know that you feel like she would say here just feel free to improvise i was like oh my god you know, to create that kind of environment where you, you just feel free to work off of your impulses and live through the character that Stephen King wrote, that's just, that's, that's, you can't put a price on that. Right. Right. You know, so, yeah, he was a joy. Yeah, I remember him in 1408, um, and he was just a phenomenal actor in that. It started out as a short story, I remember, and I went to go see the movie and was just like, what they extended it and did everything with it and more than I like than I could have imagined (laughs) and it his oh it was just so haunting so I'm just really excited to see all of you guys in this um film together I know it's just gonna make all of my dreams come true (laughs) I hope so (laughs) it's a lot of pressure (laughs) no pressure no pressure Um, so, um, I know it was available on demand. When can the rest of the world, um, experience it as well? Yeah, so, uh, right now it's on on on-demand iTunes and Amazon Prime, and then it'll be in select theaters on July 8th. Okay. I am super excited. (laughs) I may just go to iTunes then. I may not, or Amazon Prime. I may not be able to wait then. (laughs) I may have something to do tonight. (laughs) So thank you so much for talking to us about this. Did you have anything else that you want to add or that you want to tell everyone? Yeah, I just want to, um, if you want to find me and keep up with my shenanigans, uh, you can find me on Instagram <laughs> at Erin Elizabeth Burns, Twitter at Actress E.E. Burns, and Facebook fan page is Real Erin Elizabeth Burns. So E.E.B. <laughs> That's who I am. <laughs> and thanks for your support, too. You know, it's um, a lot of... I know I touched on earlier, if if you're not a part of the business, sometimes, you know, you'll see somebody on TV or in a movie and think, oh, you know, they're, they're just an overnight sensation or, oh, you know, they, you you just, you don't always know how hard people work and this is a blessing and um, I just hope that it encourages other actors not to quit because if I had gotten frustrated and quit, this opportunity never would have come to fruition, but I trained for years and I was ready to go when the opportunity came. So hard work equals really good timing equals a lot of luck <laughs> equals gratefulness. So, <laughs> well, I wish you so much success in your career, and I can't wait to see you in so much more of films that I plan to enjoy. <laughs> Lady, you're so sweet too. Thank you so much for having me on. I love it. I'm kind of a nerd myself. So. Yay! Another nerd. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Unstoppable. Unstoppable. Trap. Yeah. Yeah.
Nephew growing up fast, I bet he'd be real proud right now. Right now. 